Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. A crude reality for stocks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dow, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hope you had a good holiday weekend. I had an excellent holiday weekend. Some like Coach Prime out there in Colorado. Yeah, <laughs> like, <so>. Exactly. <laughs> we were we were talking a little football before we came on. There was something for everybody this weekend. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I we would hope it would carry over to the investment landscape. I'm not so sure though. Stocks kind of kicking off this shortened trading week on a mixed note. Down S and P. Um, look like they were going to close lower. I'm not sure exactly where they are right now, but um, and Nasdaq looked like they were hanging in there, maybe flat. Actually, that dipped in the red as well. Bond yields higher, so were crude prices. Oil hit a 10-month high after Saudi Arabia and Russia said they would extend those voluntary supply cuts. Um, that seemed to cast a, a cloud over uh, as people are kind of looking at the economic forecast. What's top of mind for you as we kick off this new month for all means and purposes. Yeah, I appreciate that, Maggie. Thanks again for having me, everyone. It's good to be back. So, um, you know, what's top of mind for me is always the same. We're always executing our process on a daily basis. So I figured it might just be a great place to start, Brian, uh, with our macro weather model to get a sense of what's happening in the real economy, what's happening in the financial economy, and how those two factors are sort of uh, contributing to um, the outlook for asset markets. So we'll start um, on the left side of this table. So we refresh this model every day uh, for our 42 macro subscribers. It, it really helps us kind of navigate kind of the, you know, all the cross currents that we've experienced uh, in financial markets this year. So we'll start with growth at the top left. It's accelerating, is expected to continue or expected to decelerate over the next 12 months. Inflation's decelerating on a trend basis. It's expected to conti continue decelerating on a trend basis over the next 12 months. Uh, the unemployment rate inflected to a positive trend recently. It's expected to continue that positive trend over the next 12 months. Corporate profits, if you look at sales and EPS growth rates, those are trending lower for the S&P 500. The sovereign fiscal balance as a percentage GDP has been trending lower as been budget deficits have been, has been widening. Uh, we got a record non-war, non-recession budget deficit in the U.S. economy. Uh, the real effective exchange rate is trending higher despite that. Um, and that's obviously created some, uh, some headwinds from a liquidity standpoint when you look to the top right on this chart. Our 42 macro net liquidity model, that's the Fed balance sheet, TGA, RRP. You know, that, uh, that number's been trending lower. Our global liquidity proxy, which I find to be a much better model for explaining asset market performance in terms of the dispersion that it produces in the back test, um, that number's been trending lower. And, and our global liquidity proxy is the global central bank balance sheet plus global broad money supply plus global FX reserves minus gold. Credit's trending lower if you look at broad money supply, both domestically and globally. Uh, the policy rate's trending higher. The two-year nominal yield spread relative to the policy rate is trending lower. So markets are expecting uh, some easing over the medium term. Uh, in terms of fear, 
we aggregate U.S. dollar positioning across all major currencies in gold uh, at minus 9 12% in terms of non-commercial net length as a percent of total open interest. That's a neutral signal. We aggregate U.S. rates across the Treasury curve at minus 19% of total uh, of non-commercial net length as a percent of total open interest. That is an extreme bearish signal. And then we, in terms of greed, uh, we aggregate commodities across the CRB index. That's an extreme bearish signal at plus 6%. And aggregate U.S. equity instruments, that's a neutral signal at minus 3% in terms of that net short position that we still see in asset markets. And so when you put all those 20 factors together, they all contribute independently to each of those asset class forecasts. We got a neutral three-month outlook for stocks and bonds, a bearish three-month outlook for the dollar, commodities, and Bitcoin. And we're currently in a Goldilocks regime with a medium conviction. Yeah. So a lot of information there. When you first were describing it, I was thinking, okay, growth and inflation moderating. Like, you know, this is, this sounds like when you're talking about the labor market, it kind of sounds soft landing-ish, maybe nothing too terrible, maybe just cooling off enough for the Fed. But then the second part sounded sounded bad, liquidity, and that sounded worrying and the bearish indicators. So you know, it, I mean, it's no greens, I noticed, right? So sort of yellow and red. Um, it's a yucky time to be taking risk in financial markets. And that's what the model's saying, is that stocks and bonds are likely to be, you know, experiencing sort of, you know, baseline returns relative to the to historical sample, relative to historical trends, whereas the U.S. dollar commodities and Bitcoin are likely to experience below median returns over the next three months. And according to all this, it's just not a great environment. You know, it hasn't really been a great environment all year, but one thing that we've been, I think, you know, we take some credit for, uh, we've been very right on this, you know, positive inflection and growth in terms of not only the direction, but also the resiliency of the economy throughout. And ultimately, that's something that we expect to persist into the second half of the year and may continue to insulate this, you know, very narrow U.S. equity asset class relative to the rest of the world that looks to be breaking down from a quantitative standpoint. Yeah. So uh, better than others, but it sounds, it's interesting because nothing's, um, everything's either difficult or just flat out bearish. We don't have anything that seems to be doing well, you know, so except I guess cash. Yeah, I mean, that's been the case. I mean, really, I mean, a lot of returns have been concentrated too, not only in terms of the actual factors, you know, U.S. equities, you know, you maybe had Bitcoin in the beginning of the year, but it's also been concentrated in time where you saw, you know, big thrust higher in U.S. equities in January. If you certainly, if you weren't there then, or if you weren't there from between May and let's call it mid-July, mid to late July, you know, you really weren't there at all. And, and so you go and look across global equities, global credit, uh, digital assets, you know, again, a lot of the gains have been very, very, um, you know, concentrated both again in terms of factors and also in terms of time. So it has been a very yucky year to, to put on, um, to put on risk. Uh, but this is why we think it's been, been very instructive and very helpful for our clients in terms of our systematic approach. You know, there's been a very easy year to get swung around and whipped around based on macro narratives. But the reality is most of those macro narratives have really come, failed to come to fruition. Um, you know, I certainly- For everybody, I, right? For, for everybody. both including, camps. Uh, totally, totally. It's been so frustrating. Is, this is why we run a systematic portfolio construction process. I have plenty of macro narratives that failed to come to fruition, less than the average investor this year. Uh, but certainly not everything we thought would come to uh, come to fruition has really come to fruition. But the reality is none of that impacts our portfolio recommendations and asset allocation recommendations. The only thing that matters to there is all the quantitative signals that we uh, produce for our clients. Yeah. And that's why whenever we talk to you and to others, we're always talking about having that framework, right? Having that system in place so that you can... Um, pay attention to what's in front of you as opposed to just sort of going on an, on a gut intuition. I want to talk a little bit about the labor market. Uh, Friday's jobs numbers came out. Whenever it's a Friday until a holiday weekend, it always gets a little bit buried. Um, it looked like we did see some moderation. Wondering what you're thinking about wages because, 
you couldn't help but notice if you sort of, you know, opened up anything to read on your phone or, or had the TV on. We have a big United Auto Workers union contract ending. We've seen this sort of steady drumbeat of unions uh, are lobbying for higher wages and contracts. I mean, the UAW is asking for a 46% pay increase. What's happening on the wage front and how do you think that filters into the Fed? Yeah, great question, uh, Maggie. So, uh, Brian, a few thoughts to slide four uh, in terms of our breakdown of the August jobs report. So um, the second panel in that chart report, actually, I'll just, just go through each of the, the panels. So the first panel where we show uh, private sector employment, the blue bars represent the three-month annualized rate of change. The red line represents the year-over-year rate of change for these statistics. So free anytime you see a chart like this from us, that's, that's what you're looking at. Uh, so in terms of private sector employment, that accelerated modestly to 2.3% on a three-month three annualized basis. Wages, to your point, private sector average hourly earnings decelerated to 3.9% on a three-month annualized basis. That number's right around the long-term trend. You know the pre-COVID trend, so we're kind of back to normal levels of wage growth, um, at least with respect to the private sector. Uh, the four, third panel there, private sector average weekly hours accelerated to 0.0%. That's the highest number we've seen really since going back to March. And then, you know, when you productize those three features, you wind up with private sector labor income, which is the broadest measure of wages and salaries that we get from the from the from the labor market. And that number accelerated to 6.2%, but it accelerated in a pot in the most positive way possible, which is we actually had employment growth and hours worked accelerate while we had um, wages actually decelerate to a more trend level. So this is why we have the view that the labor market is sort of back into this Goldilocks state, which is it's not too hot in terms of the Fed, in terms of activating the Fed, but it's not too cold in terms of activating recession fears. And so I do believe we can persist in a state like this for several months, which would ultimately you know, create some more right tail risk in the equity market. Yeah. And it's interesting because everyone I uh, was so skeptical. The Fed has been sort of saying all along, listen, we're we're trying to land this soft landing. We have a terrible track record of doing it, but so far, it seems like they're getting awfully close. Um, does it seem like they might defy the odds this time around? I think the probability of a soft land, this is something we've been talking to our, our clients about for several months now, which is the distribution of probable economic outcomes is relatively flat relative to, you know, kind of historical tightening cycles in terms of where we'd be for now. But more importantly, I think it's getting flatter at the margins. And so we do believe we still have, you know, going back to November of last year, we put out a forecast that we would likely enter recession in the U.S. economy sometime between November 2023 and April of 2024, that six-month interval. But currently today, I happen to think it is going to be the latter part of that six-month interval as opposed to the early part of that six-month interval. But to answer your question with respect to a soft landing, Brian, if you put up slide six, I do believe a soft landing is very much possible, and the and the, the share of the distribution between recession, soft landing, and you know hard landing right now, I think the share of the distribution you know continues to seed itself towards soft landing, away from hard landing now or recession, you know, kind of six twelve six to nine months out. And so what I'm showing in this chart here, um, the top two panels show the total labor force. As you can see, we have not regained the trend line in in, in labor force uh, the size of the labor force. But the second panel shows that we have regain the trend line in terms of gross domestic income. And why that matters is that we have a ton of cash floating around the economy um, that can support you know, uh, goods and services consumption, but we don't necessarily have as many bodies in the economy uh, to produce that. Uh, when you go into the third panel here, we show the blue line shows labor demand, uh, which is household survey employment uh, plus Joe's total job openings and labor supply, which is again, that, that total labor force. And as you can see, there's about a 2.7 or 2.5 million person spread between those two figures and why that matters is because that, that spread has historically tracked 
the private sector, the year-over-year rate of change of the private sector employment cost index, which was shown in the fourth panel. So uh, we sort of peaked out at around 6 million in terms of that imbalance between labor supply and labor demand uh, at the beginning of last year. And we've, you know, trended it lower and why that's mattered and why this is really important in terms of, you know, inflating the probability of a soft landing is because if you look at the bottom panel there, the thing that's causing the labor market to sort of build slack at the margins and, and you know alleviate the supply demand imbalance that's been creating higher and higher wages is the fact that we've seen a reduction in total job openings but no reduction in total employment and so if we continue to see that reduction in total job openings which is the red line in the bottom panel there with the blue line continuing to accelerate albeit at a more modest pace then what you're ultimately going to see is the blue line in that fourth panel right above it continue to trend lower alongside the imbalance between labor supply and labor demand so all I'm basically trying to say is if what's currently happening in the data and has been happening in the data for the past four or five quarters continues to happen over the next four to five quarters, we will be having a soft landing in the U.S. economy. And this is exactly what Jay Powell outlined at the beginning of the tightening cycle. So if we do soft land this plane, he's, he deserve, he's going to be very deserving of a big standing ovation, and I will certainly give him one. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact, it's like uh, 10 out of 13. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it is, they're really in the minority that the, the times the conditions line up and they're able to do something like that. So mm -hmm. Fed Governor Christopher Waller seemed to suggest today when he was speaking publicly that the Fed can afford to take their time and wait for more data. Consensus seems to be building that they're, they're on hold for September. And maybe if they go again, November looks more likely. Is yeah. that what you think? Yeah, they should take their time. I mean, I think, you know, so there's, I think Powell's absolutely nailed this in terms of we're now in the phase of just allowing the economy to catch down to the level of interest rates in terms of um, the, the policy tightening. Um, you know, they don't really know, our star, they can debate our star as far as the, the cows can come home and to the cows come home. But the reality is no one actually knows what our star is, certainly not in real time. And so, to, you know, to use that as a policy setting, you know, tool is kind of, is very fraught with, you know, error. And so I think what Powell is electing to do instead of that, it's just saying, hey, we think we're around our star. Let's just wait and see if things break or not, which is, it makes a lot more sense than saying, well, inflation isn't doing exactly what I want right now, so let me hike again. And, and to me, I think that that's a, it's a much more appropriate path to take because, again, we are getting positive outcomes. Wages are coming down. The imbalance between the labor market supply and demand is coming down, and obviously inflation is coming down. So why not just allow time to, you know, to, 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 for the economy to, um, to continue those trends? If those trends are discontinued, you know, and obviously we have the OPEC production cut throwing a wrench in the inflation picture potentially in the in the coming months. If if the plan doesn't, if the plan discontinues, then they can obviously continue to hike again um, and go from um, you know being paused and not being paused. But at the end of the day, I do believe they're pursuing the best action of policy. Yeah, our star is that that sweet spot, right? That rate where the economy's growing but inflation is not, um, and it's, there's a lot of moving parts to figure that out right now. Do yeah. you see anything breaking, Darius? You mentioned liquidity. It, you know, on your on your dashboard that you're watching, 
Um, we're going to be doing a deep dive into that coming up and I'll let you all know about it um, soon. But uh, what's happening on that front? Any reason to be concerned? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in fact, if you go to number eight, uh, I think we talk about this chart every time we, we, we uh, Oh, is this the resilient, the reason the economy yeah. is resilient? <laughs> our famous uh, resilient U.S. economy thing. And by the way, for those who haven't seen this, this is from last summer. We've been accumulating um, uh, yeah. reasons why the U.S. economy has been resilient. And, and one of the reasons that's kept us on the right side of this U.S. economic call the entire time. But the, um, a few things of this this chart, they're, they're, some of these things are more structural and they aren't going to go away. But some of these things are you know, cyclical and will ultimately kind of give way, which is, you know, uh, limited credit cycle vulnerabilities. That's something that could change with more, the passage of time. Um, you, you know, in terms of, you know, the longer and long and variable lags, yes, they are longer, but they are eventually will catch up. And with that, you mean people will eventually have to pony up and, and get a new car, reset their business Bingo. loan at these higher rates, Bingo. right? Bingo. So it's taking longer because again, you have a, a you know, not record, but very low, high levels of, um, of duration in terms of uh, mortgage uh, mortgages in, in the mortgage market and also in the corporate credit market, and so that's you know limiting investors uh, or sorry borrowers need to refinance, and also their their desire to refinance is actually crushed in terms in terms of the spread between uh, the coupons and the um, the current you know, the market rate. But that stuff will eventually hit the economy, likely in the next two three years. It's going to take some time, but at one by one borrower by borrower, business by business, household by household they're eventually going to hit those long and variable lags and reset to a higher level of interest rates. Um, in terms of that perfect storm for new housing development, that's something that could also, you know, continue for a while. But until you, once you start seeing um, households, you know, kind of really get tapped out um, from, a, from a demand perspective, or really the builders, it's really the builders who've been subsidizing the mortgages for, for, um, for, for incremental home, new home buying. And if they kind of get tapped out from a balance sheet perspective, then that perfect storm ceases. Bidenomics is not something that we believe is likely to continue indefinitely, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. We have this record non-war, non-recession budget deficit in the U.S. economy. The budget deficit itself is $1.3 trillion larger today than it was last summer. And so that's obviously something that's probably not going to, you know, we're not going to be $1.3 trillion next summer than we are today, right? So that's going to, in terms of delta, that's going to um, come down at the margin. And, and labor hoarding might be something that is persistent, but we, we do. this is the one thing we don't really know anything about because it's the first time we've really seen it in the data. But if we do start to see some real degradation margins, and again, we have inflation coming down, and if growth inflects lower, you're going to have a double whammy on margins. And so some of that labor hoarding might come undone. So this is why we still believe a, a recession is the modal outcome. Again, but that distribution of outcomes is relatively flat. It's not a steep, you know, high kurtosis distribution. It's very, very flat in terms of um, the, the probable outcomes in the U.S. economy. Yeah. And the labor hoarding is going to be very interesting because it's it, this is where time becomes something we have to watch because do they invest in technology so that they replace workers with automated for anyone who's gone into a supermarket or a fast food restaurant i'm sure you're either checking yourself out ordering if you've gone to an airport you're checking your bags i mean there are less and less humans around doing this so do they solve it that way and you know we've got ai coming so those are all things that will are kind of unknowns, right? Unknowables right now. So it's going to be super interesting to watch that. Um, I, I have, we have a great question from Russell that I want to get in here. I think it's a perfect time. What's the data saying about inflation over the next three, six, nine, 12 months? Does Darius have a position on fiscal dominance? Yeah, we definitely have a position on fiscal dominance. We are in a fiscal dominant regime. That's something that we've talked about for our, uh, in terms of our, our research, you know, for really almost two years now. Um, so I don't think that's the fiscal dominance portion hasn't really changed. But what is likely to change over the next uh, 12 months, as I mentioned, relative to the previous 12 months, is we're not going to get this sort of, you know, sort of 
lurching forward of the deficit like we did from 2022 to 2023. Don't forget we had the Chips Cuts uh, Chips Act, that, you know, what's the other one? Inflation Reduction Act. You had all these sort of acts that sort of put new ability for for you know private sector um, private sector agents to really come tap the the federal balance sheet and expand that. So I don't think we're going to see that kind of same dynamic. You're still going to have a large budget deficit. But it's not going to grow to the same degree that it grew over the last kind of 12 months. And so that's going to be an issue. And then in terms of uh, where we have inflation over the next three, six and 12 months, you know, our view is that we are still in this immaculate disinflation regime. Uh, when you analyze inflation in terms of the, you know, the sort of shorter term stochastics like three, three month annualized, six month annualized, those numbers are continuing to lead the year over year time series lower. And we're starting, you know, we're still accumulating lower and lower levels in terms of the sequential, the month over month inflation prints, whether it be headline core inflation. We also seeing that in, in underlying measures of inflation as well, like trim mean CPI and PCE, you know, um, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So and core PCE and obviously super core as well. So, you know, generally speaking, inflation is likely to continue coming down over the next few months. But where I take offense to, you know, kind of the medium term outlook for inflation relative to consensus and certainly relative to the Fed is that they have inflation linearly returning back to their 2% target without any real hiccups in the economy. And historically, that's been very, um, that's very unlikely to do, very unlikely to occur. Um, you look at, you know, sort of something like core PCE, you typically experience most of the reduction in the core PCE rate in and after the year after a recession. You yeah. tend not to have core PCE and other measures of inflation like wages break down until you're well into recession. And so it's our view that we're going to get stuck at an awkward level of inflation at some point in the next, let's call it, six and three to six to nine months. I do believe the near terms like inflation is going to be continuing to be very positive, but maybe by year end, particularly if oil continues to move higher, you're going to start to have a different conversation about inflation shifting from an immaculate disinflation narrative to something that's more like a sticky inflation narrative. And that's probably it for asset markets. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to bring up because we did see that hit today. We, we started the show asking about crude reality, but you know we had that move again from Saudi Arabia, who's been very aggressive in, in terms of trying to support prices. And you did see crude move higher. And in fact, some have pointed out, while it's not off to the races and spiking higher, to your point about sticky, um, even with all the weakness we've been hearing out of China, oil's kind of been holding in. It hasn't been collapsing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, to me, that's it's the, the, the transition from immaculate disinflation to sticky inflation is the number one thing that's going to cause problems in asset markets. Because you, you're gonna, it's going to bring back currency volatility. It's going to bring back bond market volatility. Those, you know, the negative trends that we're observing in, you know, U.S. liquidity and global liquidity. Those are only going to get exacerbated um, by those factors. And so, you know, it's incumbent upon us as investors to be hyper alert to when that's occurring. You know, we have yeah. this uh, system that we, uh, I think we may have talked about a few times in this program, our global macro risk matrix, which is a model that we use um, that's sourcing, you know, 42 of the most trafficked markets across, you know, institutional finance through the lens of our volatility just a momentum signal. And that model is saying, hey, it's still safe to buy the dip because we are in a risk on regime, which is Goldilocks or reflation in terms of that system. When we, which I happen to believe from a qualitative research standpoint that at some point over the next three to four to five months, that system is going to transition to a risk off regime, most likely inflation, which is risk off with an inflationary bias, which creates you know bond market volatility, et cetera, and more expectations for policy tightening. And so I, rather than guess when that's going to occur, I'm just going to let the system tell me that in real time and, and sort of now cast my investor positioning, my bias, my buy the dip mentality, transitioning that to a sell the rip mentality, factor selection, transitioning from that from you know risk on reflation to something that looks more like risk off inflation. You know, all those decisions I think were ahead of us as investors, but why guess? Why try to you know act like we have the ability to predict that in real time? Why not just you know continue to clip the coupons that are there until it's ultimately time to change? 
We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and so many people have just been wrong and, and have been caught out on that, um, trying to time that. It's been so difficult. Uh, Doug asking... Uh, Darius, short-term, do you consider DXY at the high end of its range at 104 plus? Yeah, it is, absolutely. But again, if we're in the middle of a transition, which we very well could be, um, you know, I don't want to predict the predictors in terms of saying, hey, I think the model's in the middle of a transition, therefore, it could be, we could very much be in the middle of a transition to risk off inflation. If that's the case, the dollar is not at the high end of its range. The dollar's range will break out to a different range. Mm. And so that's something you need to be aware of as an investor. You know, you have to think about investing from a regime segmentation perspective. You know, there, you know, we organize regimes in the context of Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, deflation based on the deltas, the trending deltas and growth and inflation. But, you know, there are other ways to organize this stuff into regimes. So what you do learn and glean and gain as an investor by organizing the economy into regimes is it makes it very easy to think about, okay, what's an appropriate range for these, you know, these types of assets? What's an appropriate valuation for these types of assets? What's the expected returns? What's the expected correlations in terms of constructing a portfolio, which is what we do uh, in terms of helping our institutional clients? Mm. Uh, this is a I, this is a question that comes up. Uh, well, first of all, let me uh, let me jump uh, to a different one first, and then I'm going to bring this back up. Uh, Trillionex asking, just so we can close the loop on our dollar conversation. What do you make of an environment where oil, dollar, and gold could go up at the same time? Oh. But that's potential. It's unlikely that you're going to have gold going up at the same time. But, um, you know, we obviously have this new BRICS currency thing. I don't think it's a real catalyst for anything in the very near term. But I think at the margin, it probably favors gold relative to the dollar uh, in terms of how that the mechanics work in the background. But I don't I mean, it's very unlikely we would see in this particular market environment transitioning from where we are today to transitioning to something that looks like inflation, where you have more currency volatility, more fixed income volatility. It's going to be hard for gold to really you know, hold its hold its water, hold its price level in that in that environment. So I, we we if we do transition to a risk off regime, and again we do expect to see that at some point in the next let's call it three to six months, we do believe we're going to transition to a risk off regime. I don't know if gold's going to survive that. Uh, this is the question that I wanted to bring up because I think it's a good one, and and we've gotten this before, Darius, but it's worth going over. Um, Brendan asking regarding near record cash on household balance sheets. Why are other reports out there saying the opposite, that most households have close to record low cash balances? Because those people are doing bad analysis, to be totally honest with you. I'm no longer mincing words about it. Just I, believe we ta- I believe we, I think we get this question every time we put your list up. But, but for, for, for those who haven't been part of that conversation before, what is it that, that you're looking at when you, when you categorize that as one of the things that's been helping keep the economy resilient? Absolutely. So we're, we're looking specifically at Federal Reserve flow of funds, checkable deposits, and money market fund exposure for the household sector and the corporate sector. 
when you look at the household sector, we're up at around you know three to three. Sorry, it's around four to five percent of, um, of, of of total assets for the household sector. That number at four point five trillion dollars is up about three trillion dollars from where it was um, prior to COVID. Um, when you look at the corporate sector in terms of their checkable deposits, it's somewhere around just shy of two trillion dollars. That number is also around four to five percent uh, as a percent of their total assets. And you got to go back to the, like the nineteen sixties and seventies to see ratios of cash relative to total assets for the household sector and the corporate sector. So, you know, again, we're looking at hardcore flow of funds statistics on checkable deposits and money market fund exposure for the, you know, for the private sector. What I think other investors are doing, and though I've certainly seen this, is that they're going, hey, well, Bank of America said the median consumer had XYZ in their account in 2019, and now the median consumer has ABC in their account. And I think if you look at it on a cross-sectional basis in terms of you know decomposing it across you know different income cohorts or different wealth cohorts, that may be the case that you know the lower income consumer maybe has less of that delta of that delta in excess savings than they did relative to they, you know, let's call it two or three quarters ago. But in aggregate, the total amount of cash between checkable deposits and money market fund exposures is significantly higher. It's trillions of dollars higher today than it was relative to 2019. So I just don't know how people get into those numbers. Yeah. Um, and we do have a lot of conversation happening on credit card debt delinquency in the chat. Um, again, I think it's, you know, the slice of the population you're looking at. And I think you made a great point last time. That doesn't mean people are spending that or that they yeah, consider they it disposable income. I think this is where we all get confused as well. You mm -hmm. know, some of it may be in accounts that are meant for later dates and that they're trying really hard not to touch if you're being smart. hundred um, percent. So that's, a, that's like, you know, that might help change your mindset on that number. So the Fed's not the Fed's being agnostic and when they're gathering these numbers, they're not saying, oh, this is your Roth IRA or this is your, you know, they're just looking across everything, right? hundred percent. And but don't forget though that that because the numbers exist, some consumers are receiving that in terms of interest payments, um, in terms of right. you know, T bill issuance and things of that nature. So it's adding to consumer income. I want to say uh, the most recent data point we got, I want to say uh, in, interest income for the private in terms of nominal interest income for the US personal sector is growing at around nine, 10% on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. You know, that's about 10% of total income. And then you add up labor income in terms of um, uh, nominal employee compensation, that number's growing at about 5.8%. Yeah, some of these labor contracts are worth paying attention to. Now, granted, I just heard, you know, very locally, if anyone's in the tri-state area, Staten Island ferry workers, operators have been without a contract for 13 years. <laughs> so wow. um, they, but they just inked one because they're concerned about not having anyone to run the ferries. Oh. So, but this is, this is, this is happening. So, you it know, is. it will show up. You can certainly argue whether it's long overdue, whatever your perspective is, but you know, you will start to see this drift into the numbers, I think at some point, especially if the UAW gets this deal. And one, one quick thing on this, the UAW, South Staten Island, Screenwriters Guild, all these sort of unions that we're seeing pop up demanding uh, more compensation, more better, better working conditions, you know, they're sort of at the tail end of this sort of readjustment process that we've experienced. You know, the, the broad, the, the, the median consumer has already experienced, you know, five, six, seven percent wage increases, where if you look at, you know, something like the Atlanta Fed, sticky wage tracker, or the, the ADP, you know, kind of job switcher statistics, those numbers are actually closer to nine, 10, 11, 12 percent in terms of their wage gains that they've seen. So the 5% of America that still works and is employed or, or work, is part of a union, a labor, mar a labor union, they're kind of catching up to what the rest of us in the private sector have really experienced in the last two years. Absolutely. Um, and there's some, by the way, some people doing some really, really great research and we'll hit on this um, on the 
um, benefits and and downfalls of that. But there there are there are also benefits. I know we tend to think of that as oh, it's going to cause inflation, but there are some there are some silver linings of that happening. Got to get a question in here on Bitcoin. Um, Angela asking Darius, when do you believe the Bitcoin bull run will start? Uh, I mean, so in terms of the number one driver of Bitcoin right now, we run a, 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 some, some, some sophisticated algorithms to kind of determine what's driving different asset markets. And Bitcoin's being most driven by the floor Fed funds rate. And so the floor Fed funds rate is the minimum value on the OIS curve, overnight index swaps curve, out to two years, which indicates, hey, this is where the market sees the Fed cutting rates to in this, in this interval. And so that the fluctuations, the daily log price changes in that particular um, statistic is actually has the highest correlation with Bitcoin on an inverse basis which basically means Bitcoin goes up when the, the, the floor funds rate goes down and vice versa. And the only reason the floor Fed funds rate goes down is if the you know, probability of a you know, recession starts to rise or if we see some real nasty move, or not nasty because it'd be positive, real, real sharp deceleration in inflation. But we haven't really seen that you know, really since going back um, to the spring of this year. So it typically is what Bitcoin really wants is that you know, wave of liquidity from you know, the Federal Reserve and other public sectors around the world. And the reality is, we're probably not going to get that until well into 2024 based on the policy guidance that we've gotten from each of these central banks, which is higher for longer, higher for longer, higher for longer. They're not going to chase inflation high to the level that inflation's at. They're just going to wait for inflation to slow to and through their policy rates before they begin cutting and doing QE and all that stuff. And, you know, again, that's just that could be six, that could be nine, 12 months from now. And so we know the halvings next spring. But the reality is you might not see 100,000 on Bitcoin until, you know, late into 2024, or maybe early 2025, which is where I think it's going. Yeah. So you're going to have to have some patience. Um, Ralph pointing out it's up 54% year to date, but that's yeah. because we had that. Most of that came in like three weeks, by the way. So if you weren't there for those three weeks, you didn't get anything. Yeah. So you're going to pack your patience, all you Bitcoin holders. Um, Darius, we're out of time, but it's so great to start the, well, start the week off with you, right? It's not, I've got to keep reminding myself, it's not Monday, <laughs> but we're starting the trading week off with you and we appreciate it. I appreciate being with you guys. Always a pleasure. We'll catch you back here next time. And great to see all of you. Thanks for the fantastic questions. We'll see you same time tomorrow. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.